Welcome to Episode 5 of Beholder, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop RPGs. This month is all about the team at Dungeons & Dragons, which has so many women working behind the scenes. Wizards of the Coasts, Kate Welch, Emmy Tangi, and Shauna Narcisco help make D&D happen with their game design, graphic design, and art direction. After we chat with these women wizards, we'll hear from Ashley Warren, a D&D writer about what Curse of Strahd and the setting of Barovia means to her. You might know Kate Welch as one of the newest game designers for Dungeons and Dragons, or you might know her as Rosie B. Stinger, not your grandma's grandma on Acquisitions Incorporated, the C-Team. Kate and I chat about what it's like being a baby wizard and our hopes to create an even more welcoming, inclusive, and diverse DD. I am here with baby wizard Kate Welch. I'm so excited to chat with you for Beholder. I am really excited to do this. Thank you for having me. Absolutely my pleasure. Uh, so tell me, Kate, how did the wonderful world of tabletop RPGs enter your life? Okay, so my gaming history starts with games when I was a kid. I had like a a Super NES growing up and I lived in North Carolina where they didn't have a tabletop gaming culture at all. So I remember working at a coffee shop. I had this group of dudes who would come in and play Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering in the back of the coffee shop, but there were never any girls back there. And and so, and, and it was weird for me if I like went back and offered them water or whatever. I was definitely like, it was, it was sort of like stumbling across a group of like very shy, like uh, groundhogs or something. Like it would just like all kind of turn their eyes to me. Um, and so I, I, I kind of didn't have a culture where that was something that was inviting or, or interesting for, for me. I remember I, I had a boyfriend who's, Friends were super into uh, the, I think, White Wolf role-playing games like Vampire and and Mage. And I remember sitting in on one of those sessions, but again, I wasn't allowed to play, but I was just like kind of hanging out while they did their their vampire stuff. And I thought, man, this is so cool. And it ties into to a love of role-playing that I did online. I, I was really into Star Wars role-playing online when I was a kid. So from the ages of like 13 to 18, I would, I would get onto these, these role-playing chat rooms and with my Star Wars OC and just, just role-play whatever dumb crap I, I, we did. I don't even know. And so tabletop role-playing games kind of combined everything I loved, which was the mechanics of, of a game that was numbers-based with the, the role-playing and the acting aspect but it wasn't until I was living in Seattle and I had already had a, I'd been in the video game industry professionally for a few years. I ended up making friends with a, a big disparate group of people and deciding like, oh, all of these little people, all these people from my little social groups would make an amazing Dungeons and Dragons group, I think. And so I put together the super group and we played for like two years. And so that was my, that was my first D&D experience. I think it was uh, it's either 3.5 or 4, and uh, it was very crunchy and numbers heavy and a lot of minis and a lot of grids and maps, and I was just like in hog heaven. I was so happy. <laughs> uh, so uh, then with 5th edition, I hadn't played at all until I was invited to be on um, the C-Team, the streaming show that I do. 
and that was just like the beginning of the end for me. I, I, I think I played for about, I don't know, six months and it was all I thought about and all of my D and D members, the group talked, we talked about it all the time and we were email role-playing with each other. And, and I was thinking about how, how can I use this love of D and D to make the world a better place? Um, because I, I thought it could do amazing things. So I ended up brainstorming this nonprofit uh, idea and it was something that really got me going and, and made me excited. And I, I don't want to give any details out just yet because I hopefully it'll still happen, but it ended up being part of my application when I saw this guy, this game design job at, at, at Wizards. I sent them some writing samples and one of the writing samples was a, a sort of a fake proposal for this nonprofit, this Dungeons and Dragons nonprofit that I wanted to start. So it, I don't know, it's, it's kind of just like in the last calendar year really gelled into an obsession that luckily has become a career. <laughs> So your first D&D experience you made happen, you recruited the group. Were you the dungeon master or one of the players? No, no, I, I, I dungeon master, I do DM now, but certainly it's still terrifying every time I do it. And way back then, but why I'd never played Dungeons and Dragons, I was like, hell no. Those editions were so, so very rules heavy. I, it just didn't, it didn't seem accessible to me at all at the time. I knew a guy who was a dedicated DM and GM and ended up being just a, uh, an astonishingly good introduction to, to Dungeons and Dragons. He was, <laughs> he was the kind of DM who would do a massive amount of work and paint minis for all the big boss monsters that he was going to throw at us and design. Like we, we backed all the Dwarven Forge minis for him to have um, the Kickstarters for him to have all of the terrain and buildings and and pieces of of like artistry that he could make into all of these settings. And there were days he would come in with like he had a dolly, and it had it was just stacked with Tupperware containers and plastic bins fill, filled with minis and and pieces of of scenery. And there were days when we would just like forget our character sheet. <laughs> This guy was doing so much work for us week to week. And we were like, oops, I guess I forgot my dice today. Can I buy someone else's? Um, so it was very classic. Like DM does all the work and his players don't appreciate him. But uh, but I, I definitely did. Oh my gosh, he sounds amazing. I love maps and minis and my heart is like exploding. <laughs> I know, it was really cool. Here, I remember one time he brought dry ice. It's a really cool idea and is dangerous. And try it at home with cross. He bought dry ice at the grocery store. He prepared this giant castle layout and he had little candles. And then he let the dry ice fill it. So we were in this like foggy dungeon with our minis and they turned off all the lights. It was so cool. Wow. What an amazing immersive introduction to the game. I know. He was he was a very, very special DM. Um, so how is life as a baby wizard? What does a typical day look like for you? Oh my gosh. It is amazing. As of May 5th, I'll have been here three months and it feels like years already, not because it's been drudgery or, or a, a long process, but because I've already learned so much. Um, I think like a typical day for me now is reviewing text, editing and, and making changes and making game design calls and working really closely, with, especially with Jeremy Crawford, but um, also with Chris Perkins and just just reading my eyeballs out every 
okay. My brain is mush by the end of the week. I'm so glad we're recording this on a Friday and I can't wait to just go home and like stare at a wall. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very, it's a very intellectually stimulating job. And I've, I've been working with just amazing people who have been very patient with me. Also have been from the, the day that I got here, really excited and open to my ideas and, and ready to hear my perspective. And it wasn't something that I expected. And it's been a really pleasant surprise. Very cool. How has your perspective of Dungeons and Dragons changed in these past three months? I think that what felt to me like a very personal love of Dungeons and Dragons has been, it's been made very clear just how many people play this game. And it's really hard to get that kind of perspective when you are playing sort of, it's a, it's a game that you play locally in the sense that you have a small core group that either meets in person or online or whatever. And you you don't get a sense of the greater, the broader D&D community outside of your groups. And, and there's, there's Twitter, there's Facebook, and you, you can get the, the idea of how many folks are interested. But for me to get here, it was very eye-opening to think of and hear about the millions of people who play Dungeons and Dragons and all the various ways that they like to play Dungeons and Dragons. And for us to be considered the stewards of this experience, it's a really big responsibility. And it's something that we all take so seriously. There, there are people who've been playing this game since they were children and they're, they've, now they're in their 40s or 50s. And so to know that we are the caretakers of those memories and those experiences, as well as the people who are crafting the new content for people who've never tried it before, uh, is it's a it's a wild spectrum. I, I don't think I've ever even heard of another game that has a lifespan this long that still has such an active community. That aspect of Dungeons and Dragons, and also it being a tabletop game and not a video game, does it feel very different from your past experience in video games? Yeah, in some ways, it's very, very different. What's so interesting about D&D is that because the, the rules are, are mechanically very sound and they, they have, there are rules for, a lots, for lots of things, but unlike a video game, you can kind of pick and choose what rules you want to follow. Uh, and that makes it so everybody's version of Dungeons & Dragons is so much their own, their own personal version your group may play with the same rules mine does, but probably not. There's probably things you enforce or things that you don't that we do. The fact that you can just sort of ignore what you don't like is, is something that I think it makes a huge difference in the enjoyability of, of Dungeons and Dragons. And yeah, it's, it's of course, it's just, it's a book, right? They're the games, the games are books. So going from the visual presentation of graphics and HUD and um, menu systems to the UX of a book has been a huge learning experience and something that will probably take me a lot longer to truly master. But um, luckily, my mentor here, Jeremy, is a uh, former UX person himself. And so we can speak to each other in this UX language that makes a lot of sense. Very cool. I feel like it sounds like you're learning a lot, even just in uh, the few months that you've been there. But I'm sure you're also bringing a really amazing, fresh perspective to D&D, do you have anything, like, do you have, like, hopes and dreams for what you're bringing to the game? Yeah, I think so. Um, one, of the, one of the lovely things about this team is that 
it may surprise people to learn that there's a huge percentage of the team that's female. And so um, it's for me to say like, oh, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm bringing my woman perspective to D&D is a totally erroneous thing to say because that perspective has existed for a while. Um, however, it has been a very long time since they had a dedicated game designer uh, who was a woman. So I get to, I get to at least, you know, do some, some checks on this. I, I will, I have an example of my, my second day here, which still blows my mind that anyone would listen to me on my second day, but I was reviewing some of the, the uh, last drafts of uh, Morton Kanan's Tomophos. And I was looking at a particular block of content that was worded in a way that I found a little bit problematic. And I, I was just, you know, I, it was literally just, I was like, hey, read, read Morton Kanan's and read it five more times and find, find typos and things like that. But I remember bringing this to Jeremy and saying, hey, um, this, is, this is kind of a weird word that's easy to misinterpret and could lead to degenerate behavior in players. What do you, what do you think about it? If anything to this one word, then we'll, we'll fix it all. And he was like, yeah, we could change that one word or you could just rewrite this whole table and just redesign it. And I was like, oh my God, yes, thank you. And I, he, took me, he took me seriously, instantaneously. Uh, I rewrote the table, proved everything I wrote and now it's in the book. That was my second day. And that's crazy to me. And that's that's something that I, I feel like whatever my perspective is, I was able to make the game a little bit more fun for someone. And they they may not have even known it. A change that no one will ever see that, that was made. But but I think that I got to change the game for the better. And that was amazing. And and just goes to show how exciting and excited this team is um, to have me aboard. That is so cool. Are there any other moments that jump out to you where you just felt like, oh, I made an impact? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's every day. I, that sounds so cheesy, but it's true. Uh, there's, uh, I'm really passionate about getting new people to play Dungeons & Dragons. So one of my pet projects that I'm working on with one of our, um, our narrative designers, Ari Levich, is a uh, trying to brainstorm in Blue Sky a whole host of ways that we can get people to try Dungeons and Dragons who may never have tried it before, whether that's a kid or whether it's a grandma or whatever, people who might have heard of it and are curious, but find the experience of character building to be daunting, which is totally understandable. And, and a lot of the mechanics and in the introduction of Dungeons and Dragons is easiest to understand if you have a mentor there to help you make those decisions and to, and to point you to all the right places. It's a little bit scattered. How do we create something that require no mentor? Like, how is it possible to understand instinctively what you're what you're doing without that? Uh, and so there, there's a lot of design challenges around that, and we've we've been able to blue sky that. But every time I bring it to um, Mike Merles, my boss, or to Nathan Stewart, um, they're they're so excited, and no one no one has said like. You know that's a fine idea, but probably now is not the right time. Which is a, an answer I'm used to. I'm used to hearing. It's very much like, yeah, do it, pitch it, give us, give us what you got. So it, that's that's just like the openness and the welcomeness of their attitudes has been huge. And like I said, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Honestly, it's happening every day. It's really cool. So I had the pleasure of playing a game with you when I was in Seattle recently at Teku Tavern. Yeah. And your <laughs> passion for making new players 
feel welcome and not intimidated at all um, and kind of tiptoe them into role play was very apparent because we had a totally new player at our table. We did. We did. And she kicked ass. <laughs> she was so much fun. I think that she was hesitant, but thank you for, for saying that. I absolutely love it when someone says, like, I've never played D&D before when they sit down at the table and, and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to have so much fun. I remember what it was like to be kind of overwhelmed by this this whole process. So for me, it's it's a matter of being like, okay, here's here are the pain points that I remember experiencing. Maybe I can smooth this over for this person. And so, yeah, the, what you is kind of what I would love to do on a on a grander scale. Yeah, she started out so quiet, but she was secretly sassy, and that definitely came out by the end. She was so sassy. <laughs> <laughs> but you did a wonderful job too, because your your character, I think, is Mercy, who it's not, you've played before. Yeah, right. And so you're you're very comfortable, I think, in that character. But you were doing these things where you you would do like little flavory role-playing things with Mercy. And I think that this new player was picking up on those things. And she was like, oh, you can just like do, you can just be whoever you want. And you can be goofy or you can do something that's gonna be like kind of kind of sinister or sneaky. Uh, and so I don't know, she she was picking up cues from you as well. And and I think I think she had a good time. <laughs> oh, I hope so. I hope she comes back. I, I hope she, I hope so too. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that with C-Team, uh, feeling a little intimidated and overwhelmed at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Was there a moment when the game sort of clicked for you and being rosy clicked for you? Oh, yeah. The beginning of C-Team, we did the session zero. I, I, it was definitely not recorded, and I, but I, I've talked about it before. But what happened was we, we all sat around the table like we do, and we basically played a whole game as though the cameras were on. And uh, I was dreadful. I was so bad. And I was so nervous. It didn't make any sense because nobody was watching. But <laughs> Jerry had to come up with this vampire puzzle for us. And, and so we were all trying to solve this puzzle. And we were all, <laughs> it was super embarrassing because we'd all given him, he's like, what do you want out of this campaign? We're like, well, we want puzzles and we want role playing and intrigue. And he was like, cool. So session zero is this puzzle that we totally blew. Like we, we, so this is the stupidest group of, of role players ever. Like we have all these obvious clues, and we are just we were just idiots. It ended up being a TPK, which was fun. Oh my gosh! There was a point where he he had me come up to this party. There was this, there was a sort of like halfling party that was going on, and of course Rosie was all about it. And he had this halfling child come up to Rosie. And, and kind of like bow in front of her and say, grandmother. And I, <laughs> I froze. Like now, now that's no problem. People do that to me in real life. And that's, I'm like, yeah, I got that. But, but back then that was the first time anyone had ever done it. And I remember thinking, oh my God, what do I do? And I just sat there and I remember the silence was just, it was just dead air if it had been on camera, which thank God it wasn't. But I, I sat there and I thought about it. And there was like 10 seconds of tense silence, no joke. And then I was like, um, where are your parents? <laughs> that was the first thing I up with. It was so bad and dumb, but luckily I got out of my system. Um, for me, I think Rosie gelled. Jerry gave me this, this brilliant moment in our first actual game that was live. And it was this moment where Rosie is, is walking down 
this country road and is accosted by bandits. And she's just this helpless looking grandma. And she scares them so bad that they like pee themselves and run away. And that was like, that's, that is Rosie. That is hundred percent Rosie. So from then on, I just knew who she was mechanically D and D. I, I think it's safe to say I still probably play D and D wrong. Um, and I was still, I'm still doing something wrong. Uh, but, but luckily the, the twofold one is that my DM is very forgiving. And if we do it wrong, he knows, let it slide. Cause he doesn't want to just like ruin the, the rhythm and the flow. But the other is that luckily the community of the CG is very quick to point out when I have rolled a D10 instead of a D8 because they can see what I'm rolling. Um, so those are, those are the kinds of mistakes that the community helps me fix. But the three months that I've been here, oh my gosh, I've, I have probably become 400% better at D&D just because of, of studying all of these mechanics and reading all the spells and, and uh, referencing them constantly to make sure that the new content we're creating is consistent with the stuff that we've already published. The beginning, the beginning of D and D. If you if you are a person who is considering it or has examined it once and been like, "Whoa, I like that a lot," you are not alone. Um, but it is it does boil down to some very very simple things, and you get the hang of it quickly. Um, as a woman, like picking up this hobby, learning tabletop RPGs, and I mean, a seasoned video game professional, and now working in tabletop RPGs. How would you describe your experience as a woman in these roles? It would be dishonest to say that the game industry is a perfect place for a woman to be. There is a lot of improvement that a lot of companies can make. And what I'm, what I'm really excited about is that where I'm at right now, uh, although still, like I said, no game company is perfect, but Wizards has been the best experience for me that I've ever had as a professional. And like I was, I was here for 10 days when we had the International Women's Day, Women's Day happened. And they did a panel of women on the, on the team. And again, I'd been there 10 days. And I think the, le- the next most junior person on that panel had been on the team 10 years. And so I, I, was very, I was very much out of my league. But as I looked down this panel, incredible women who have been on this team for a decade plus, they were all just powerful and they, they've been in huge amounts of responsibility and responsible for crafting some of the, the most memorable parts of the D&D experience. And I realized that this is a company that puts women on that path. You know, there's a, it's a very big deal to see women in positions of power when you are a, a woman starting out because you it gives you so much faith and confidence that other women before you haven't gone, fuck this, fizzled out and left, which which happens all the time in video games. And you look upward in the organizations of of most video game companies, not all, but most, you see very few women. uh, And there's a reason for that. And so when I I see this company that is filled with these, these powerful women in positions of leadership, I know that this is a good place for a woman to be. That just is so inspiring just to hear. Oh, good. (laughs) Are you comfortable talking about sort of like the weirdness that happened when it was announced you were joining the D&D team? Oh, sure. Yeah. So weirdness was, and and I, I saw, I try to subject myself to this stuff as little as possible. So let me know if you saw something that I didn't. But 
what happened was like 99% of the internet was incredible. And they, everybody was very, very excited. I got DMs from like Matt Mercer and Griffin McElroy, and they were so excited for me. And that was, that was huge because those dudes are my heroes. So that was honestly the vast majority of the experience. There were certain parts of the internet where the announcement that I was going to be uh, the new D&D designer was met with a lot of scrutiny. And, and I remember they were picking apart my resume on LinkedIn. People were like copying and pasting it and, and trying to criticize the, the experience that I had had, which they felt wasn't relevant or, or enough. And I remember too, that there was, there was plenty of talk of me being a, a token hire or a diversity hire or whatever. And what's especially ridiculous about that is that the D&D team had plenty of women, so they did not need another one. <laughs> like there are, there are lots of women on the team. So, you know, the, the tokens have been hired. Um, and so, uh, yeah, there was, there was a good, good deal of that, but again, such a small slice of the internet that I was just like, you know, uh, I guess this is basically the best that I could have hoped for anyway. And the, as, as with all things, I want my work to speak for itself. It was definitely uh, just a very vocal minority, but definitely a minority. And I think for yeah. so many fans of D&D, it just, uh, first of all, was amazing seeing that uh, you were the designer chosen, but then also seeing how much the D&D team had uh, your back. Um, but I imagine that vocal minority, it probably felt really awful. Yes. Um, and for those of us watching uh, it happen, was this, I yeah. think especially women watching it happen, was this combination of like surprising, but also sadly not so surprising. Like it was something that a lot of us could relate to, if not on such a public scale. Here's what I here's what I want to believe. What I want to believe is that because I came from a video game background and not from a tabletop RPG background, that that was the reason for the scrutiny and that gender just sort of blended into that. Um, and so that for for people to worry again, this is a this is a job where we are stewards of an experience that people really treasure. And so for for people to worry like that they they would put an inexperienced person onto the team. I get it. I do because I too treasure Dungeons and Dragons and I don't want anything bad to happen to it. When I, when I come from, from a, at it from that perspective, it makes more sense and I can, I can be more receptive to it. Um, I'm the kind of person who doesn't want to jump to the, the gender being a problem card, but it, it, you know, at the end of the day, like there, it did come into, it was just like, well, she's unqualified. She only works in video games and she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I can't see that having been the case if it was a dude, you know, like they, they probably, if it was a guy who came from video games, I think the conversation would have been uh, at least a little bit different. Um, and so it, it's a, it is definitely something that I cannot ignore. And I think that ignoring it is detrimental to the women who are out there trying, trying to get heard and recognized and get credit for the work that they've done. So while I try to view these things optimistically, I do understand that there there is uh, there there are problematic elements, and all that I can do is uh, work my ass off to prove them all wrong. How did you, while it was happening, like personally deal with that? 
I think I made like one or two frustrated tweets about it, which is always fun. Um, and I, I definitely kvetched to my husband about it. Um, and so he, uh, he got to hear, <laughs> and he always says, whenever there's some, some internet BS, I always I'm like, Ooh, this thing is happening to me. It's on the internet. <laughs> he's, very, like, he's very insulated from the internet. He doesn't really do internet or pop culture too much. And so he's, he's just like, Oh, that really sucks. Let's go for a walk and check out the, what the real world has to offer. <laughs> <laughs> so he's a very grounding element in my life. So there's, there, I, I was very lucky to have a good support structure. And plus, it, it has always been my style to blast the haters on Twitter because that's my outlet. And I, I like to, I mean, if, if somebody is going to the trouble of blasting me, I don't understand why they should have the joy of, of doing that without me getting to yeah, call them out. Yeah, I do. I do like to call out. Um, but uh, it, again, it was such a, it was such a small group compared to the ocean of support, which cannot be understated. These, everyone was so kind um, that I, I just, it was, it was really easy to, to brush them off. And I, one, one thing is too, that is very true is that even inside of those uh, communities where this was happening, there were always voices chiming in saying, do you, are you on Wizards HR? Did you do the interview? Like the, why would they, why would they hire an unqualified person? What do you, why, why are you adjudicating this? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I had a really scary interview process. <laughs> yeah, it was good. And I remember um, when I did my phone screen for the job, I was on with our, our HR person, Emily, who's a, an absolute dream. And she was, she was just awesome. We, we talked for like an hour and we, we had a wonderful time. And by the end of it, I said, you know, I really do think that I'm the right person for this job, but I can tell that you guys are going to get the right person for the job. And if that's not me, then that's great because that means that there's someone who's better qualified than me to have this responsibility whatever whatever choice you make i'm i'm excited for it and so yeah and that's true i i'm really glad oh, don't get me wrong i'm really glad and i was pretty sure that i was the right person for this job but whoever got it i would have been like hell yeah all right D D is going to go somewhere exciting with this person oh good they're taking care of our precious precious thing exactly uh, what other advice do you have for women who want to pursue game design i believe that game design comes from like a library of knowledge and and let me let me back up i come from a user experience design angle in video games specifically so i i believe that the most important quality that i had in that role was to have just a a catalog in my head of the user experience patterns and and uh, examples that I had seen exhibited through video games that I've played in my life. And what I liked and what I didn't like, and I was constantly kind of analyzing it and figuring out what worked. And that that was the angle at which I came into game design. And as a result, it kind of like segued me into that. Um, but I think that maybe the most important thing, it's it's kind of it's kind of generic advice actually. It goes for a lot of things in life. But with game design especially, I don't think anybody arrives at the best answer or solution at, on their first try. So the, to me, the best game design 
is one that has clearly been iterated upon a million times. And to, to just try a bunch of things that are of like 90% of your ideas are going to be terrible, but that's part of the fun of it too, is you, you sort out what's good from this like giant pile of chaff that you create and, and you, you figure out where the nuggets are and you iterate and you iterate and you iterate and you come up with a million ideas and one of them will stick. And, um, and that one is the one that you move forward with and kind of evolve upon. Does that make sense? No, that absolutely makes sense. I know even just in um, like the writing process of game design, your best work is the stuff that you've edited thoroughly. Oh, yeah, yeah. And to, to start, I think from going from nothing, from, from the blank sheet of paper or the, uh, the blank empty Unity file, if, if, you're, if you're going that way, that's, that's the scariest place to be. And going from that to just, even if that something is, hot garbage. That is the hardest part. And so if you can just fill a blank piece of paper with hot garbage, then at least you'll have overcome the hardest part. And from then on, it's just, it's just editing. It's just iterating. It's just tweaking. It's sending it to people for feedback and then implementing. And by the time you get to something that you're excited about, you may not recognize it at all from the hot garbage, but, but it's, you can't, you cannot iterate on zero. You have to have something to start with. So it's really just get started. All right. So winding down, was there anything that I didn't ask you about that was important to you that you wanted to make sure you talked about? One of the things that I, I would love to talk about would be what I, I really love about fifth edition um, in particular, which is the emphasis on diversity and inclusion. And I know that that's something that has been a huge driver for Dungeons and Dragons. And it's it's a big part of what attracted me to the role and to the game. The way that that characters are portrayed in fifth edition and uh, the the very conscious 50-50 gender split. Um, and and now in, in future books we're also we're including a lot of, of gender fluid representations of characters too. And so to to be able to find these portrayals of powerful characters that that kind of like look like you or look like something that you would want to be regardless of who you are is a really huge deal and it's something that I have I've advocated for at every studio that I've ever been to and one of the nice things about this studio is that I didn't, I didn't have to advocate for shit like I came in and I was like, hey, what about body diversity? And I got this like 30, 30 minute long conversation about how excited everyone is about body diversity and getting, getting uh, artists to be able to portray people of various sizes and ages and, and, uh, and ability. And so uh, I was like, oh, all right, you guys already talked about this. How about, uh, can we have more like sexuality representation? And, and, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's all of our, here's what we've done already. And I was, I was like, whoa, all right. Uh, well, um, I guess we are we are on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't even, you got this covered. This is great. So it's a very uh, open-minded group of people. And on that note, I wanted to ask you if, if you had any feedback or ideas about how we could do that better going forward people are listening to this interview right now, 
they should definitely tweet at my myself and the podcast at Behold Her Pod uh, with thoughts on that, on how we can make D&D more inclusive and more diverse, because I would love to hear that. Yeah, please. So if people want to reach out to you directly to talk about uh, how they think D&D could be more diverse and inclusive, or just keep up with your baby wizard shenanigans, <laughs> how can they do um, that? You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Kate Welch with uh, four H's because the others were taken. Um, and that's where I, I do a lot of my shenanigans. And it's not, it's, it's usually not too much D&D stuff. Um, although at this point, I don't know what else I'm talking about in my life except D&D. But, but it is, it's a place where you can see me trolling Jeremy Crawford and, and um, Mike Merles and Perkins. So it's a, it's a pretty good time. <laughs> ah, trolling those guys, that is high quality content. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Emmy Tanji is an art director on the D&D team but you perhaps best know her graphic design work, laying out the books we love, designing graphics for the streams we watch, and so much more. Emmy shares what it's like working with the Wizards and what she's learned at her Lunch Hour Dungeon Master Bootcamp with the team. Hello, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, So to start us off, Emmy, do you remember your first Dungeons & Dragons game? That was um, back in 2007 when I first started working at Wizards, and it was an all-female game, and our dungeon master was our one of the editors, Cal Moore, and he's fantastic. I started working here, and I figured I should probably, you know, really get to learn and play, you know, the products, and that's where it began. It's been a long-running campaign, although that one's kind of come to an end or kind of fizzled out recently, but, you know, there's been more games and it's just been fun the whole time. That's amazing. Did you have this, like, conception of what D&D was? And when you actually started playing, how did your thoughts about the game change? Well, I knew it was a role-playing game, like tabletop, you know, like speaking and role-playing. Growing up, I played a lot of video games, like, okay, well, it's like that, but, you know, imagination and, you know, kind of maybe stats and maybe math. So when I first started playing, I was like, so I can just say what I want to do? And he's like, yeah, what do you want to do? I'm like, oh, my God, I can do anything? And he's like, well, yeah. So <laughs> that was, I think, the most amazing part was like, I can do anything, which might sound really silly, but um, you have like this whole entire world. You have this character, you have your party members, you have these monsters and you're like I could do anything and so <laughs> that was the most enjoyable thing I realized when I first started playing yeah that's like really cool it's not like like computer games they can only program in so many options of how the world will react to what you do right and if there's a fence you can't pass the fence or a pile of rocks you're like well I definitely can't climb those rocks <laughs> Does anything stand out in your mind of something really crazy that you did with your character that made you think, oh, D&D is the best? I know that everybody kind of plays characters that are similar to themselves. People could play characters as things they want to be. So that part alone is fantastic. First character was a halfling rogue, which is so fun to play. And it came to a point where I would always want to try to sneak up on things and jump on them. I'm like, can I write? Well, you got to roll for it. I'm like, well, I'm going to write it. And so he'd write it. And it's this great challenge of always trying to figure out, well, 
what can I do? How much damage? And what can I do different rather than just attacking them straight on? You know, like, well, is there a hole? Is there something I can climb on? Is there something I can push on it? And so all those fantastic little options always made for really entertaining situations. And I'm sure everybody's had those experiences, you know, not just like, okay, well, we're going to attack it. You know, it's like, well, there's this hole, you can push him into that. Another enemy comes, oh, we're going to push him into the hole too. And it's just, oh my goodness, that's, I guess, how we won, you know, this battle. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people forget that you can totally interact with the environment and it makes for such, like, richer storytelling. Yes, and, like, trying to make friends with, with NPCs or, you know, trying to think that they're maybe a little bit more important than they actually are and trying to convince your um, DM, like, no, 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 we really want to bring so-and-so along. Or, you know, like, <laughs> no, I, I really think they're important. He's like, well, you know, it's like, no, no, trust me. I, th- I got a good feeling about them. And then, you know, that's the great part about having a really good DM is that they'll roll with it, you know? Oh, I totally empathize with that. I adopt every NPC I meet. Right, especially if they're animals or monsters. Tell me a little bit about how you ended up at Wizards of the Coast. After college, I started working at this toy distribution company and doing packaging and art for it. And it was was fun. I was really interested in uh, collectibles and, you know, toys and stuff like that. And uh, the photographer I actually worked with there she ended up coming to um, Wizards of the Coast and she, you know, one day phoned me and said, hey, there's an opening for graphic design, you know, why don't you give it a try? And I said, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm at the point. I learned a lot of stuff and I'm kind of ready to learn something new. So I was like, well, tell me more. You know, they make Magic the Gathering. They used to do Pokemon and all that. I'm like, okay, well, I played Magic in um, elementary school and, you know, definitely heard of D&D. So let's give it a go. And came and they let me in. And <laughs> ever since then, it's just been really, really amazing experience and just wonderful people. Uh, tell me a little bit about your role as art director. Oh, art director. That's new. I've been, majority of my life here has been graphic design, which I have loved and you know didn't want to let go because I love working on the product so much. Now I'm starting to dabble a bit into art direction. And it's been really easy because I get to work with um, amazing mentors like Kate Irwin and Shauna Narciso, who, you know, they direction look absolutely flawless, right? They communicate with artists. They just have these visions. They can kind of be that middleman between translating the vision that our, you know, world builders and our developers want to, you know, with the artists. So I have a huge respect for them. And I'm kind of starting to work with um, our new designer, Trish Fjokum, who's also super amazing. And we're working together and I get to give a little bit of direction here and there. So it's it's been a little nerve wracking because it's there's just been so many great people before me, but um, I'm really enjoying it. Can you tell me a little bit about the differentiation between working on the graphics and then actually doing art direction? Working on the graphics, which I still get to do and I still want to hold on to because it's just so incredibly fun. That covers working on um, the interior book layout, the design, all of the little fiddly bits, you know, in there. Um, the splotches, which are those little <laughs> uh, water painty kind of shapes in the background of each book. You do the splotches? <laughs> I do. I sit at home and I make a bunch of splotches. And then <laughs> it's, it's fun. It's very relaxing. Um, so I just have a stack of these splotch papers I hand in, but um, each one is is drawn. <laughs> and, 
Um, and there's also stuff like getting to work with our the live streaming folks, you know, Bart and Tito and Jeremy and Pelham and all of them are great and getting to supply you know, little graphics for what's needed for the web. So marketing stuff as well, kind of whatever they need, you know, I try to do my very best in. <laughs> and our direction is kind of working with other graphic designers as well and kind of sharing the vision and, you know, giving them direction on kind of, you know, what might work and what our goals are and what we hope to accomplish and kind of keeping things on track with the brand itself. It's a little bit different, but it's, you know, taking on leadership, which it makes me a little nervous, but I'm still really, um, I'm just, I know that I'm in a good, a good place to take on because I have such a great team to work with and I trust them absolutely and all their skills and you know what they're capable of so I am the lucky uh, I bet you're gonna be amazing <laughs> I thank you <laughs> I'm also sitting here like just like smiling really big because it's like you forget that even something like the splotches which add so much <laughs> texture to the books and make them like even more interesting to read oh, you forget that someone has to actually make those so that's really cool to know that oh Emmy makes those <laughs> I made that splash. And the great, super fantastic thing is that I've um, gone online and, you know, perused to the Adventures League and, you know, all those great adventures that um, our community has put together. And, you know, I've peeked at their layouts and I am so darn impressed at the things people have accomplished. And I've looked through some adventures. I'm like, wow, that looks like one of our books. <laughs> <laughs> and- <laughs> yeah, you guys. You guys are like the standard that we're all trying to achieve. Our community is so fantastic. And I'm, I I actually got like excited when I saw somebody make their own splash. <laughs> I was like, oh, they did it too. So they, they recognize or they saw it. So yeah, I, I'm so appreciative of our community and um, just the enjoyment that they've got to. I've heard the feedback about the visuals of the books in fifth edition. And it just makes me really, really thankful for them. Well, this like kind of like leads nicely into my next question. I was wondering, what would you say is the best part of your job? Oh, the best part. It's the people. <laughs> like, I mean, it's fantasy. I love fantasy. I grew up on fantasy, reading books, looking for books with dragons on them and all that jazz. But um, it's it seriously is the community. Like we have such ah, just a supportive, amazing community, both in um the people outside of the office and inside. Like I love coming to work because I love every one of my coworkers, which is, I think, a very wonderful thing to get to say. <laughs> and it's just really fantastic to be surrounded by that much talent. And not only that, but that these people truly want to make a product that is enjoyable and that is, you know, well, like welcomed by the community. And they want to include the community and the feedback and they just want to make a good quality product. So <laughs> they're, they're really a lot of dedicated people who not just, you know, they don't just come to work and, okay, well, I got to do this and I'll go home. Like they play the game, they get involved and they really cherish the outcome and how it affects other people that receive the game. So I enjoy the people inside and out of the office the most. Oh, that's so good to hear that everyone who like stewards this amazing hobby of ours is as passionate about it. It's so incredible. Like getting to see uh, Kate Byrne when she does like the massive amount of art commissioning for the interiors of the books. So she is the sole 
person who works with all the artists to fill up the book with art. And then you have like, you know, Jeremy Crawford, who's the editor and just his appreciation that, you know, he spends so, he wears so many hats, but he also spends so much time perfecting the rules and the story of the books, as well as, you know, like Chris Perkins. And they both have so much appreciation for the visuals, which previously it's always been maybe a challenge, like, oh, do we have enough space for words? Do we have enough space for art? And they just both, like, they treasure the art, they treasure the visuals, and they're like, we're going to make sure there's enough space, you know, to show what things look like. And then they also are so meticulous about the content. I don't know a weekend that they haven't worked. (laughs) They are absolutely amazing. (laughs) Gosh, before I forget to ask, am I remembering correctly that you are the designer in charge of the Extra Life shirts? Yeah, that's me. I'm very lucky to get to work on that stuff. And (laughs) the designs are really adorable. Thank you. I hope, yeah, I hope the kids like it, but uh, it gets me super stoked when the adults like it too. (laughs) Where do you draw inspiration for them and get your ideas for those designs? And do you have any ideas you're willing to share for this year's shirt? Ooh, so Bart and I are, Bart's, uh, Carol's kind of spearheading uh, extra life for this year but we had some discussions about some ideas on what it could be or you know what kind of activities we could start getting into what his needs are and we usually try to link it to you know whatever current campaign or whatever theme is going on so last year was um, the tomb of annihilation so you know we we were able to squeeze in a green devil mask that wasn't too scary (laughs) and so some goblins from Chult that I, I love goblins also. Usually I like to choose monsters just because, you know, who doesn't love monsters, right? I feel like it shows a lot of imagination, a lot of things that are unique to D&D. So if there's a way to integrate some kind of not too scary, not too treacherous monster, you know, that's kind of close with maybe Water Date this year, it would be it would be kind of a nice direction to go. And if you have any ideas, you can always share some with me. <laughs> I was about to ask if we were going to get an adorable Xanathar. <laughs> I can make that. I yeah, we haven't done a beholder yet, so I think that's a that's a possibility. <laughs> and with his goldfish, so <laughs> you've been working as a graphic designer at Wizards for just over a decade now. I'm wondering if you have any insights on how D&D has changed, even like behind the scenes, how you guys think about it, or even just the fans and the culture. I came in at kind of the pitter-pattering of 3.5 and 4th edition. Everyone probably knows it was a bit different then. Um, it was, um, I still enjoyed it. I, I started playing it, so I, I enjoyed those editions. Totally fine. But there has been a, a pretty amazing evolution of the game and the community itself. Just the fact that, and you know, maybe it's with technology as well, but all the streamers really putting it out there into, I guess, the world is, it's been kind of amazing to see come over time and just focus now, especially with fifth edition, so much on the storyline and making the game really enjoyable, being able to, um, play the game, you know, just sitting next to each other. Not, you don't necessarily always need a map or, you know, to count the squares on the graph, but it's it's opened up to a lot more people, I feel, and it's just made it more accessible. And I really, I really enjoy that. I, for one, feel really lucky that 
I got introduced to the game as fifth edition, it just it feels like it was for what I imagined D&D would be when I was younger as just uh, a way to tell stories. Yes, yes. The storytelling part is huge. And I'm actually I'm actually trying to learn how to DM just for fun on the on the side. But um, I because I, I love playing. But I was also curious because I know that I feel like DMing and being a good DM is like having a really amazing set of skills, right? Because you're able to kind of like work with these people who are surrounding you, asking you questions, you know, giving you these situations and you just have to go with it and be able to think on the spot, remember things, you know, go back to past experiences and then also kind of evolve situations that usually are not, you know, accounted for. So I I felt like learning to do that would just in general make me hopefully a better speaker (laughs) in life or, you know, like um, able to handle things because I'm not especially good at speaking in public or thinking on the spot. So um, Richard Witters and Adam Lee have been giving me this little DM boot camp. During lunch for an hour, I get to sit down with them and Kate Irwin and Sean Wood will join in sometimes and run this little game for them. And... It's the greatest thing because I can, you know, I can kind of put them in these situations where I think I'm doing okay. And if I start getting confused, I'll be like, okay, pause now. And then I get to ask them you know, DM advice because they've kind of gone through it before and say, okay, if I'm in this situation and this character asked me to do this, like, what's a good way to handle it? And they're so gracious about going, well, you know, here are some options. And then I get to go, okay, back into the game. <laughs> oh, wow. What an awesome way to learn how to be a dungeon master right like play with dungeon masters and then just do the pause and then ask them for their opinion and be like okay i might do this and then go back so the dm bootcamp with them has been so much fun and i wish we could do that more with our community too and i'm sure there are tons out there since we have so many good you know good leaders out there is there a particular insight or tip that adam or richard have shared with you that that stands out in your mind Oh my gosh. Okay. I always try to take so many notes. Use your NPCs. So use your NPCs. You know, if your players look like they're having a tough time figuring something out or, you know, like maybe things aren't as spicy or enjoyable, like, you know, go ahead and utilize the characters you do have control of to kind of move the story along, you know, or like give them a tip or kind of progress, progress the the story. Richard also said you can create the anti-party which is give your reason, your players a reason to get fired up. So introduce them to like an NPC or group who just happens to be a little more dashingly handsome. Are they gear <laughs> than you? <laughs> or like maybe a little more famous than your ragtag group? So that kind of drives you to be like, well, okay, well, you could either steal the equipment or you could be like, well, I want to be, you know, what's so good about them? So... <laughs> It was a really cute idea. <laughs> oh, and I love that because I'm just hearing yeah. about it. I'm already annoyed. <laughs> I, <laughs> right, you're like, like slightly no. better. Right, yeah, I'm totally, no, no, we got this team. Like, let's do this, you know? <laughs> and then um, just really great lessons in general. Like, don't be afraid to make it up. There's been so many times where maybe I haven't prepared for a game. And then, you know, we've just kind of rolled with it. And, um, or they've, They've really strayed from where I was hoping they would go. And again, just, you know, make it up. It's your story. You have to just make it fun, you know? And um, the monsters don't need to be complicated. You don't, sometimes you can just say, yeah, you hit it a couple times and, you know, 
the swarm dies, but you don't have to get really obsessed over the numbers. You know, if you just want to kind of give them a challenging situation, or too much about that. And you just listen to your players um, when they're discussing, like put an ear in, and then you can inspire, you know, use what they're saying to inspire ideas for the story. Because when I started with the campaign or this, you know, mini campaign, I always thought like, okay, I need to have this world. I need to have this direction. I need to have these villains. And, you know, like it was this whole cop. I spent a whole evening like making this complicated history. And it was just, it was too much. And then um, ultimately, you know, hearing them talk or discuss, oh, I think so-and-so is bad. Or, you know, I think this, this situation's kind of suspicious. Like hearing actually what they would say would spark new ideas. Like, oh, well, yeah, actually that's a better idea. (laughs) You know, being inspired by the players is just as important as, you know, making your own game. Oh, wow. Those are all really amazing tips. I would totally. Yeah, re- they're good teachers. Yeah. <laughs> so as we wind down, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about, about D&D, about WotC, anything? I got to go down to LA this past weekend for the stream. Ooh. And that was my first work trip, actually, ever. <laughs> um, and although I was kind of hitting like some dark little Durgar in the back room, <laughs> like um, working on <laughs> graphics. It was actually so incredible to get to hear over the wall how enthusiastic everybody was about the, you know, the whole event. And it was especially exciting to hear like these, you know, these streamers and these people seeing each other on the internet who have, you know, chatted for hours, I'm sure, and corresponded, like they meet each other and there's just this explosion of excitement and enthusiasm. And just everyone was pumped up and everybody had a story to bring to the table, you know like where, you know, how much they enjoyed it, how much it's you know, been a part of their lives and how much they want to have involvement, you know, in this community that's D&D. And it was like, oh my God, everybody's amazing. Sounds so joyful. Yes, it's so joyful. Yeah, and Greg Tito did an amazing job putting that together with Jenner. So it, yeah, I was, I was really proud and really excited of it you know, with everybody. And I look forward to seeing, you know, more stuff come out of our community because about those stories that people make. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So if people in the community want to follow you, see what you're up to, is there anywhere in social media they can do that? I believe I have a Twitter. (laughs) I don't use it that often and I'm still not entirely sure how to use it. I believe it's at cakes, but it's spelled C-C-C-A-K-E-S-S-S. The most celebratory way to spell cakes. Right, because someone took cakes. So, <laughs> so that's me. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm always at emmy.tanjiawizards.com. <laughs> Thank you, Emmy, so much for taking some time out of your day to chat with me and for making all of our books more lovely with your splotches. Shauna Narcisco is the Senior Creative Art Director for D&D. Joining the team just as 5th edition prepared to launch, she is the shepherd of the 5e brand and shares with us the principles that guide the latest iteration of Dungeons & Dragons. I am here with Shauna from Wizards of the Coast. To start us off, how about you tell us about your role and what exactly the day-to-day of a senior creative art director is? As a senior creative art director for Dungeons & Dragons, my role varies from the strategic to the tactical. 
Uh, we have some amazing art directors on staff, Kate Irwin, Emmy Tanji, who I'm happy to hand off things as well as accept things. And my job itself looks is outward looking. I handle all the marketing look and feel. And I kind of am considered the arbiter of good taste. How about that? Ooh. <laughs> That's a good unofficial title to have. <laughs> As the arbiter of good taste, then, what would you say are rules or principles that guide you in art direction for D&D? Oh, this is so interesting because it's so important that we stay focused about this. And what for me is the guiding light is you stay true to the brand. You don't hype the project. You don't lie about the message. You listen hard to what the players want. You listen hard to what's happening here on the team. And you don't pretend it's more or less than it is. So what that means, say, for example, with the fifth edition, look and feel, and how it differs from, say, the fourth edition. It's really interesting. Fans uh, have a long history with the brand. They love to look backwards and say, oh, let's make it look like this and that. And when I have to remind them that, no, this is fifth edition, it has a really strong, bold, almost muscular feel to it. There's no parchment. There's no faux parchment. There's no leather. There's no in-world frou-frou for the marketing, especially the marketing. That's how you hold the line. And once you get that, um, I think advertisers and people that are involved with creating product for the brand, once they understand that, it sets them free to work inside the arena. It's really cool to see it happen. Especially with a brand like D&D, it's so easy to fall into nostalgia. Is there something from D&D's past that everyone's like really tempted to include just for nostalgia's sake, where you find yourself kind of holding the line like, no, like this is really important to what 5e looks like? <laughs> this is probably really silly, but the in the past, we've had this color palette, which was gold and red black and white. And when we stepped away from the gold, it was a huge shift. And people were like, but but gold, I, I want the gold. And said, no, no, it's not. We got to go with platinum. It's not silver. It's platinum. And once they made that change in their head, just that one shift, that one color, things opened up again. It's a pretty cool change. Wow. I love thinking of it like when you think of it as platinum rather than silver, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. They're like platinum's like way up there in the currency too. Isn't it funny how the vocabulary can help you understand the brand? Yeah, that's cool. So what other sorts of challenges do you face as the art director? I don't guess I call them challenges. You know, there's that cliche that says, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. So I've been working with this company, Wizards of the Coast, for, for 22 years. And I have to say, I think I've worked on, on almost every brand that we've ever produced. I've been working on D&D for the past four years. And uh, for the longest time in that first year, I would sit in these meetings and people would look to me and they're like, you're new on the team. We've been doing this for a long time. You're not saying anything. What are you thinking? And I would look at them all and I would say, just because I'm not saying anything doesn't mean I disagree with you. I'm just absorbing and gathering. and. I felt like I'd hit kind of a critical mass in understanding the brand, then we could all strive for the same vocabulary again. And I know I go back to that, but when you speak with the same terms, people uh, can share like messages so much more easily. And the fact is, 
every conversation that I have in this company is with a wonderfully smart and creative person. So that just ups my game again, right? It's working here is truly an amazing, wonderful experience. You possibly just answered the question, but maybe you have something else lovely to add. What would you say is the best part of your job? The best part? The best part for me is the problem solving. It's when the dialogue starts and someone goes, oh my God, we have to solve this problem. For example, Waterdeep, we've got these coins. They need to look like something that belongs to Waterdeep, but we want to make sure that they are contemporary And we have to make sure that there's no lead in them when we get them made. And suddenly you realize you're talking fantasy and real world problems and you're combining them. And the dialogue that comes out of it is always revelatory. It's always a challenge in a good way. And when it's solved, it's so exciting. You get to hold it in your hand and look at it and you go, yeah, we did this. Um, those coins are really cool, by the way. I happen to get to see them in person and they look amazing. Thank you. We're pretty proud of it. They're pretty lucky. When you think back on your four years with D&D, does any particular situation that you had to problem solve um, or project that you work on stand out as like the weirdest or craziest thing you had to get art for? I find it's all about timing. When you've gathered enough intel, you can solve for the problem. Sometimes we have to solve faster than we've got all the information on, and then you get off track you go back. I wouldn't say that there's been anything crazy designing paper fans. Did you ever think you'd get to do that in this world? No, but I got to, and that was really fun. And they get used in the water deep experience. I would say part of the thing is when you've been working as an art director for this long, you know the shortcuts that you can take. You know how to solve for a problem because you may have experienced it five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And seriously, I have. So (laughs) it sounds, I don't mean to apologize for being old, but I'm sorry. Yeah, I had to do this stuff because I've been around quite a while doing it. And I love doing it. I love solving for it. But each problem that comes up has a new solution. You're meeting with new people. Everyone has different ulterior motives, different goals, different baggage, and you win with your own. The one thing, and it goes back to what do you stay true to? You stay true to what the brand is, what the look and the feel is. You stay true to what you know is good. Because why would I have this job if they didn't think I knew what was good? And then I aim for it and keep accepting input until finally, there it is. It, it, it sounds like a, a mystery. It sounds like a something that you just do intuitively, but it's all the experience and the learning that you bring with you as you go through the years. Oh, you've spoken like a level 20 creative art director. <laughs> wow, thank you. <laughs> so looking forward, are you able to share anything about the art direction for Waterdeep Dragon Heist or Dungeon of the Mad Mage? I have a panoply of brilliant illustrators to work with. And when we hear what the content is for the cover, we try to match it to an artist who has the same look and feel, the same, I don't know what the word is exactly, but when you speak to them and you're speaking the same language, you feel it, you know it. Now, I want to say sometimes I've worked with artists in the past and it didn't work out. 
And I, and I really want people to understand that it's not because the artist is bad. It's because I hired the wrong artist. I have to take responsibility for what the artwork is going to look like. Artist gets to take responsibility for having created a beautiful piece because that's what they know how to do. But if I have misdirected them, that's on me. It's not on them. And I have to take responsibility for knowing what it is I'm trying to say. I have to be clear, concise. And if a commission doesn't work out, that's on me. And when I turn to the artist and say, well, we missed the mark by we, I mean B. When we hit the mark, when we hit the mark, oh, that is the most excellent experience. In fact, Jeremy came to me today and he said, we're getting really good response on the covers for Dungeon of the Mad Mage and Dragon Heist. They are a, a set. They complement each other. The first one was illustrated by Tyler Jacobson. To his credit, Tyler captured exactly what we were trying to say. The cover is simply beautiful. When I went to go do Dungeon of the Mad Mage, I went to Cynthia Shepard, who is a senior art director for Magic. And I looked at her and I said, Cynthia, I'm looking for an artist. Tyler's not available. We want something to mirror what he did. And she looked up at me and she said, me, me, I can do this. And then she did. Now, this is pretty amazing to get an art director on staff to do a piece for a magic art director to do a piece for D&D. But she knocked it right out of the park. It's a beautiful reflection, a mirrored image of what Tyler did. And yet she took it to her next place. Uh, and both of them together have such weight and balance. Uh, they speak volumes. I've definitely seen that tweet that's been going around that has both of the covers side by side. And they're beautiful separately, but side by side, like that mirror image, the way you have like the beholder's eyes and the undead beholder's like glowing orbs, everything, like you said, balances really well. And they're just so stunning next to each other. Thank you. I'm so happy that you like that. You work on them, you design them, you see them come through and you go, oh God, okay, it's here. Is it good enough? Yes. And then, then time passes, you fall out of love with them and then you show them to someone and they fall back in love and so do you. And it's just that, this is wonderful dynamic about how covers affect us, how they have to absolutely reflect what's inside the book without lying about it. And when they do, you just feel this wonderful sense of completion. Before you joined the team, did you have any preconceived notions of what Dungeons and Dragons was as a brand? No, I didn't. Uh, it was right at the transition from fourth edition to fifth edition. I had obviously knowledge of the fourth edition and the third edition and the 3.5, everything before it, but we were entering a new realm. And I was so lucky to walk into that room. And I literally walked into a room where they were just talking about the fifth edition look and feel. All of the hard work had been done. All of the research, all of the concept, all the explorations were done. And now they were just trying to take the last three steps to cross the line. That's when I stepped in. That's when I took a look at what had been done in the past and then tried very hard to forget it. It was daunting. There's huge libraries here of what fourth edition looks like, third edition looks like. And of course, when I mentioned that about the parchment and the faux leather, all that work, that was going to disappear on my watch. And I was going to make sure of it. I was also going to make sure that people were happy with what they were going to see. So I think that was probably the most daunting task 
having a preconceived notion, it's unavoidable. We're human beings, we carry baggage. Uh, but working with this brilliant team of people, I remember sitting down with Emmy Tanji. They had logos, the new logo, and all the bits and pieces were in front of us. And I said, uh, well, you know, we're on the computer. I'm over her shoulder. And I said, okay, now do this uh, three quarters of the page down. Uh, and yeah, the logo does, uh, no, a little smaller. Oh, wait, a little bigger. No, that's perfect. Okay, pull out the edge of that red swath. The red swath, what is that? It's just a red swath. It's for, it's, it's to help identify the, the line look. And we finished it. They had been working on it for hours, weeks, days, months. And in three hours, three days, I was taking it upstairs to the vice president and I showed it to him. And he said to me, this looks really great. Why, why did you make it this size? What? He has this beautiful French accent when he speaks. And <laughs> I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, okay, this is, this is career suicide if I tell him the truth. But he says, how did you know to make it that size? And I said, well, I could tell you. I could tell you I used the golden mean. I could Okay, look, it's because I'm the art director. And there was this huge pregnant pause. And then he burst out laughing. And I took a deep breath and said, okay, we're good. Just fine. 5e has grown so much since you joined the team right at its beginning. How would you say D&D has changed? It's interesting. D&D, the team itself, was right there from the start. But when the zeitgeist... And the world changed. And we had that wonderful Me Too moment. It, it came together in a way. And even before that, the fact that people sit down and they want to have face-to-face -face interactions. We've almost had enough of cell phones, smartphones, computer games. And just let me just enjoy your presence. And here's a way to do it with a, a fun and fantasy-filled game. It's okay to be a nerd. We saw that come into play. All that stuff that just sort of the dominoes were toppling. I mean, how lucky, how lucky to be there at the right place at the right time. That's what D&D did with addition. They listened to what people wanted and then they, I should say we, but before my time, Merle's and his team, they listened to what people wanted, they gave it to them. There we are. How hard was that, right? Do you have any thoughts to share about being a woman in your role and in your field? Well, that's so funny. Um, as a woman, an old woman, I might add, because I literally, these, these people I, I am so lucky to work with, they could be my children. That as I grew up in this company, it was really important to stay smart and stay strong, to know that before you try to change anything, uh, you learn what the big picture is, you respect it. And then you try to introduce your own agenda quietly, without subversion, with complete transparency. You learn in front of everyone. You welcome that because everyone's going to make mistakes. And you just stay true. You, you don't. You, it's not about the ego. It's about working in the team. The idea that women don't get the respect that they deserve is not dependent on the woman. It's dependent on the people that she's in the room with. Every woman knows she deserves that respect. It's the others around her that don't, if that's the case. I've never felt disrespected without being in a place where I could respond to it. 
and in this company at Wizards of the Coast, there's a, a very high emotional, uh, what they, EQ, emotional quotient there. People know the right way to act. It's when we step outside into that other world where it gets more toxic. And that's when you know you just, you just have to stand up and say what's right. I can do that. I don't have a problem doing that. And I want everyone who's coming up through the ranks to have that same sense of power, same sense of uh, entitlement. As you grow up in front of everyone, and we're all going to do it, you bring all the experience that you have, what you've learned, and you reapply it. And it's time changes, water, it's never the same water under the bridge. You just, you just go with it and you keep smiling because at the end of the day, life is like a river. You know this story. I know you know this story. Life is like a river. You could go down, floating on your back, fighting everything every step of the way, grabbing at twigs, splashing and creating a ruckus. You can go down that river floating, looking up at the sky, enjoying the clouds, having a great time. Either way, you're going down. Shauna, I can just say, even just speaking with you briefly, I can tell you speak with such a passion and also a precision. I'm so happy that this game that I love so much has you helping to guide it along the way. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's that's very kind. I, I am passionate. It's the funniest place to be when someone says to me, do you like this? And I get to say yes or no or change it. And I get paid for it. But at the end of the day, I love, love the questions that we're trying to solve for. And thank you for saying that because here's the thing. When you're playing tennis and your opponent is better than you are, you always play a better game. So even just Talking, even talking just with you right now, I feel like I've played a better game of tennis with you. So thank you for that. Ashley Warren writes Dungeons & Dragons adventures. Her best-selling adventures are atmospheric, dark, and fantastical. It's no wonder then that her adventures through Barovia continue to haunt her in wonderful ways. Sometimes I feel a cool wind brush against my face, and I know where it's from. It's not from the Sierra Nevada mountains that loom over me, nor is it from the surface of the Truckee River that pushes relentlessly through my city. The wind comes from another place, a place purged from vampires and cleansed from its shroud of purgatorial darkness, a place that has become so real and vivid in my mind that it fills the space between real memories and the abstract dreams that stand parallel. I went to Barovia, and the journey there changed me. I awoke in mists surrounded by strangers, and left with them months later, their arms linked with mine. The evolution of the warlock I chose to play for this journey mirrors my own evolution. All of my characters are close to my heart, but it is she who reflects me most. Like me, she tries to seek the good in the darkness. She retreats inside herself and finds solace in her own mind. She does what she can to make worthy sacrifices for what she loves, whatever the cost. She feels life intensely, and sometimes it bubbles within her, a murky cauldron of self-doubt mingled with boldness. Sometimes the cauldron bubbles over 
In my real life, I am a writer and a researcher, so it's not so different, really, from being a warlock. I have always sought out the secrets of the universe, peering into its shadowy corners and trying not to cower at what I find. I am held hostage to my patron, that elusive being who represents knowledge. My patron allows me few other pursuits. For years, I have wielded that as my weapon, and when I channel that through my warlock, when I get to see that arcane power shoot forth with dark, crackling eldritch magic, I feel the clarity that occurs when purpose has been fulfilled, when one's duty is rendered. I feel Barovia around me often. Little moments spark flashbacks that seem so real. I see a glimpse of a crow's wing, and I know I am being watched. I see the sun glint off of a church's stained glass window, and I know I am being judged. I see my friends suffer in their quiet ways, and I know I am being tested. Barovia's door remains open, always. It has become a state of mind, a place where there can be no peace. Adventurers travel to it unwittingly and are spit out or swallowed whole. In every Barovia, Strahd makes the same mistakes over and over again. History repeats itself, but we don't. There is darkness around us now, stretching across all of the realms, all of the plains. Barovia, Cholt, Sigil, America. The weight of the world bears heavy upon us. It manifests in our world like the pointed spires of Castle Ravenloft. Enemies lurk everywhere. They often possess power that we do not. But the shadows can be vanquished. With light, with love. That is what Barovia taught me. That there are always enemies, yes. But sometimes we can fight, and sometimes, despite the odds, we can win. I try to invoke the bravery I conjured in our campaign. I try to make sacrifices with conviction the way my warlock did. I try to ask for help when the opportunities arise. I try to lay down my life for others, or at least I try to put their needs before mine. I often fail in these quests, and then I remember who my warlock is, and who I am, and what we've gone through, and what we both believe in. And I wrap my hands around an amethyst, running my fingers along its jagged edges, and I pull from that power. It is just a game, I know that. But the camaraderie around the table is not. I look at my friends, shaded by the trees in Lake Tahoe, and I'm reminded of perilous midnight escapes in less friendly forests. I see them marching in the streets, and I am frightened of the boss battles we face. But these are the forces of the multiverse that we can conjure and wield. The fear must catalyze boldness. We must protect ourselves more than ever. We must look out for each other. We must open new doors to new realms. We must travel to the purgatories and set the captives free, and learn who we are along the way. This game is an equalizer. It's our escape and our refuge, but also our reflection. It asks us to make choices. We can't control the roll of the dice, but we can always choose to make the roll. In my heart, there is nothing more powerful than these communal experiences in which we fight and feast alongside one another. Nothing more important than the stories we create, the stories we tell, the stories we share. Thank you, Kate, Emmy, Shauna, and Ashley for sharing your stories on Beholder. 
follow at Ashley Warren on Twitter to learn more about Ashley and her projects. But wait, there's more. Next month's Beholder will feature even more of the women who helped create D&D, Shelley Mazenoble, Kate Irwin, and Liz Shue. See you then.